Our scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 38. You can find that on page 869 in your pew Bibles. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she said, a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot give up, get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of Christ. We thank you for the grace that's ours to gather under the word. We pray that we would receive grace to hear Christ's word today, to adore him, to sit at his feet, and to listen to his word. And Father, we thank you for the grace that's ours to make our requests of you like a child to his heavenly Father. Please attend the preaching of the word by your Holy Spirit. Would you use it to convict those who are outside of Christ unto repentance and faith? And Would you use it to build up the faith of us who have believed? We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Before I get started in earnest with the sermon, I just want to say to you, I hope you're mindful of the grace that's been ours today during this share time. Man, oh man. We're getting to hear about all these babies that are coming into the world, and I I think about what you shared, Jeremy. I mean, God brought a family to our church. We trained them. And then we sent them out, and now that area of Massachusetts has a gospel witness, and I know that it's Jeremy's heart that God might give Rock Village Church the grace to multiply itself. And uh, boy, it's just been an encouraging time 
to give praise to the Lord together as a family. He has given us grace upon grace already today. And now, if that isn't enough, we get to hear from Christ in the preaching of his word. Back in August, I took our two oldest children, George and Bethany, I've mentioned to you before, to Fenway Park to see the Braves and the Red Sox play. And it was obvious who were followers of the Red Sox. Yeah, it was people who wore Red Sox gear, but I have a Red Sox hat, and I wasn't cheering for the Red Sox that night. And the Red Sox followers sang boisterously when Sweet Caroline was played in the middle of the eighth inning, but my girls and I danced to it too, and we sang what few words we knew, which amounts essentially to Sweet Caroline. (laughs) Ba, ba, ba. That wasn't the chief identifier of the Red Sox faithful. No, what really identified Red Sox followers at Fenway was their love for the Red Sox. They showed that they loved the Red Sox because they cheered when a Red Sox player did something good. Didn't happen a lot that night, but when it did, they cheered. (laughs) Or they cheered when a Braves player did something poorly. They showed their love for the Red Sox because they said, we when talking about the Red Sox, and they, when talking about the Braves. In the section of the Gospel of Luke that we're in today, Jesus is continuing to show what it looks like when someone is a genuine follower of his. What it looks like if someone has indeed had their sins forgiven and has been rescued from eternity and hell. And it turns out that seeing who a person loves and how a person demonstrates that love are really helpful at identifying who that person follows. So who is it that a genuine follower of Jesus loves? And how is that love shown to be genuine? And in what ways does a person demonstrate that he's genuinely following Christ? And are you, you who profess faith in Christ this morning, are you living lives that demonstrate the kind of love that we're going to see today, the kind of love that reveals you have indeed become a follower of Christ? Well, come along with me as we answer these important questions from our text today. Now, as we get started in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38, I want to remind you what's been going on in the gospel of Luke so that you can put our text today in its context. Beginning back at chapter 9 and verse 51, and that's where our series in Luke resumed back on October 9th, chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is resolutely heading toward Jerusalem. The Bible says he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and by extension, to the cross. But as he goes to Jerusalem, and though he starts in chapter 9 and verse 51 on his way, he doesn't get there until chapter 19. As he goes to Jerusalem, we're going to get lots of teaching from the Savior. Almost no miracles in this section. Nearly all teaching. And what's the theme of this teaching? Almost all Jesus' teaching from 951 into chapter 19 when he arrives in Jerusalem has to do with with being a follower of Christ, has to do with being a Christian, has to do with being a 
disciple. Those terms are synonymous. Don't get confused that someone becomes a Christian and then later becomes a disciple. No, no, no. A person is a Christian. A person is a genuine follower of Christ. A person is a disciple. Those are synonymous terms. And if you're not one of them, you're not the either of them either. So, Jesus is teaching, as I say, concerning what it is to be a follower of Christ. And that's true in our text today. We saw last week from the parable of the Good Samaritan that being a genuine follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, being a Christian, means lovingly prioritizing your brothers and sisters in Christ, loving your neighbor as yourself. Today, we're going to see that Christians obey the command to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, in part by listening to Jesus and by asking of the Father through Jesus. So, to receive Luke's teaching that those who are Christians love God by listening to his Son, Luke's going to take us in chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, to the home of Martha and Mary. I think these are the same Martha and Mary who were said to be the sisters of Lazarus in John chapters 11 and 12. And so notice in verse 38 of Luke chapter 10. I hope you have a Bible with you. That'll be helpful as we go on today, and having a sermon outline might serve you as well. Chapter 10, verse 38, Martha welcomes the Lord into her house. And as Jesus enters and whomever is with him, he eventually begins talking and teaching, and Mary, the sister of Martha, is found sitting at Jesus' feet. Don't too quickly move past that phrase, sitting at Jesus' feet. Luke has already told us in his gospel of someone who was found sitting at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 8, when Jesus heals the man possessed by demons, the man who had been kept under guard, he was bound with chains and shackles, which he would break in his chaotic state. When Jesus cast the demons out of that man, Luke chapter 8 verse 35 says that the people in the town who knew about the former madman went out to see what had happened. And what did they see? They came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had been cast out, Luke says, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Not only is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, a posture of adoring submission, she's listening, Luke says here in verse 39, to Jesus' teaching. Back in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus explains the parable of the sower, he tells us that the fourth soil is the ones in whose lives the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of salvation. Jesus says they are those who hear the word and hold the word fast in an honest and good heart. Later in Luke chapter 8, Jesus would say that his mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God, who hear the word of God and do it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 28, a woman shouts in the midst of a crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And Jesus replies to her, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
So Mary is in a humble posture toward the Lord. She's receiving his teaching humbly as one learning from him, and she's listening to his words the way saved people do. Contrast that with Martha, verse 40. Luke says Martha was distracted with much serving. Distracted from what? Distracted from, like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving. You can imagine the scene, can't you? Martha's sweeping the floor, and she's getting supper ready, and maybe she's getting a place ready for Jesus to sleep that night, and, and she's sweating, and her hair's a mess, and her lipstick's faded, and here's Mary just sitting and listening. And if Jesus, apparently too thick to see what's going on, Martha's going to help by bringing it to his attention. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Surely Jesus is going to come to Martha's rescue and get this Mary straightened out. It's time Mary starts to pull her weight around the house. Mary won't listen to me, but maybe Jesus can get her mind right. But notice verse 41. It's not Mary who gets the correction. It's Martha. Jesus says, Martha, Martha. That's a tender way of talking. Jesus isn't upbraiding Martha. But Martha's wrongheadedness needs to be diagnosed. And Jesus does it compassionately. Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. I don't know what all Martha was anxious and troubled by, and Luke doesn't tell us. But Jesus knows all people, and he put his finger lovingly but firmly on her anxiety and trouble. Jesus is going to teach in Luke chapter 12 that his followers are not to be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. And he reassures his disciples also in Luke chapter 12, if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And then listen to our shepherd. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Martha's displaying an attitude unbecoming of a follower of Christ who isn't to be anxious about anything. In fact, Martha's attitude is a lot like the mindset we see from those who express a desire to follow Jesus back in chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Do you remember that trio? One person says he wants to follow Jesus, but first I want to go back and handle my father's funeral arrangements. Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another one says to him, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say goodbye to those at my home. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, 
those seem like reasonable ideas. Let me bury my dead father. Let me say goodbye to my family. And you can certainly sympathize with Martha wanting to be a gracious hostess for her company, especially when that company is God the Son in the flesh. But just because you can sympathize with Martha, let Jesus be the interpreter. And he diagnoses the half-hearted fellowship back in Luke chapter 9. He diagnoses that half-hearted fellowship as non-fellowship. And he diagnoses Martha here as anxious and troubled about many things. No, it's not, it's not Mary that the Lord corrects, despite Martha's rude direction to the Savior in verse 40. It's Martha who gets the correction. Mary gets the commendation. Jesus says in verse 42, only one thing is necessary. Martha's anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. There's really only one thing that deserves a person's attention. Martha is slaving to bake for her guests the bread that perishes, while the bread that came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives eternal life to all who listen to his word, is sitting and teaching in her house. And Mary has chosen that bread, demonstrated by listening to Jesus' teaching and sitting at his feet. And that good portion that Mary has chosen... The Christian Standard Bible translates it, the right choice that Mary has made. That good portion, Jesus says, will not be taken from her. Yes. Those who feed on the bread that's come down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in his word, will feed on him for life eternally, and he won't be taken from them. If anyone eats of this bread, Jesus says of himself in John 6, he will live forever. Now, does this episode mean that we're to live lives of, of inactive contemplation as some over the centuries have interpreted it? No. We saw just last week a passage in which a man's doing was commended. But this passage teaches us that when we make sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one thing, when we make our ultimate aim to have him and to receive his teaching, then we will do rightly in obedience without being beset by anxiety and trouble. Then Luke chapter 11 opens. And I'll remind you, what's Jesus doing in our text? He's teaching... What are the characteristics of his followers? What are the characteristics of those who have faith in him? We see from chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, that they love him by prioritizing him, by listening to him, by obeying his word, by sitting at his feet. Those are all the same idea. And then in 11, 1 to 13, we see that Jesus' followers acknowledge God as their heavenly father. They love God by asking of him the way children ask of their earthly fathers. Remember, that's what Jesus said to the lawyer that the law boils down to. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're seeing ways to do that today. And love your neighbor as yourself. We saw that in the text last week. So as chapter 11 begins, Jesus is praying. Don't rush over that either. God the Son 
is communing with God the Father. What love from the Son to the Father. What dependence, at least during his earthly ministry, is reflected in that little phrase, now Jesus was praying at a certain place. Luke has already recorded Jesus praying back in Luke chapter 3 at the Lord's baptism. In Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Luke records that Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The Lord prayed all night in Luke chapter 6 before he chose the 12 apostles, and there are other examples of the Lord's praying. And now, here in our text, one of Jesus' disciples comes to him and asks that he would teach them to pray, as John the Baptist also taught his disciples to do, and Jesus grants their request, beginning here in chapter 11 and verse 2. He says that when they pray, they ought to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches his followers to address their prayers to God the Father. Now, is the Father more God, if I can put it that way, than the Son or the Spirit? No. Is it sin to address your prayer to the Son or to the Spirit? I don't think so. But undeniably, the pattern that we see from the New Testament is for the follower of Christ to address his prayer to the Father. Sometimes you'll hear Christian prayer described this way. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. That is, we address our prayers to the Father. We pray in Jesus' name, meaning that we understand that it's only through Christ that we have access to the Father, and the Spirit comes alongside helping us in our praying. And as we're going to spend a little more time on in a bit, notice that the one to whom Jesus teaches his followers to address their prayers is The Father. The Father. Once again, that's language that's so familiar to us that familiarity has bred contempt, or at least apathy. But but put aside for now whatever baggage attends the word Father for you. Maybe you didn't have a father at all. Maybe your father was the pits. Maybe you don't know what kind of father you would have had because your father died when you were very young. Whatever your situation, just know that whatever is ideal about a father, that's what's true of the Christian's heavenly father. Do you see the marvel of this, brothers and sisters? The God whom we worship has revealed that to his people... In addition to being our God and the all-sovereign, all-powerful ruler, he is Father. Now dismiss the foolishness that used to be in vogue about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of men. No. John chapter 1 tells us whom God is Father to. To all who did receive him, that is Christ, to all who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is Father to those who receive God's Son, Jesus, by faith. He's Father to all who believe on His name. To them are given the right by Jesus to become children of God. God becomes our Father. And Jesus teaches us to address our prayers to the Father and to petition Him first, you see, that His name be hallowed. That is, we ask of him that his name be regarded as sacred 
as sacred, as precious, as valuable, as holy. One translation has the first petition here as, Father, may your name be honored. I think that's a helpful translation. And Jesus teaches his disciples, his followers, not only to petition the Father that his name be hallowed, but to petition the Father for the coming of his kingdom. Now, of course, with the arrival of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God had come. Jesus went about preaching, Mark chapter 1 says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is going to say later in this chapter, Luke chapter 11, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God had indeed come because where the king is, and Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God by virtue of his life and death and resurrection, where the king is, there is the kingdom. But the kingdom of God, get this, had only begun to come in Jesus' earthly ministry. It had only been inaugurated. It isn't until the Lord Jesus comes back that the kingdom of God can can be said to have arrived in all its fullness. That's why, if some have said, we live between the times. Between the time when the kingdom of God has come and the time when the kingdom will come in its fullness. We live between the times. We still await the consummation of the kingdom when the Lord Jesus will bodily return and bodily raise all people, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt, Daniel chapter 12 says. And when he comes back, Jesus is going to glorify his people and finish in us the saving work he's begun. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, Paul says to the Philippians. And he's going to judge the nations. And he's going to condemn and cast into the eternal lake of fire those who are not his. And he'll rule a rejuvenated universe with no opposition. That's the day that's in view here in chapter 11, verse 2. The coming of Christ and with him the consummation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in its fullness. And on that day the Lord's name will be hallowed. Because all who remain in the new heaven and new earth will be those who revere God's name. And honor God's name as holy and precious, and sacred. And so in these first petitions, when we're asking the Father for his name to be hallowed and for his kingdom to come, what are we asking for ultimately? Jesus is teaching his disciples to ask for the return of his son. To ask the Father for his son's return. Second, in verse 3, the Lord Jesus teaches us to ask the Father for the things that we need. Give us each day our daily bread. As John Calvin put it in commenting on this passage, quote, We are first commanded to pray that God would protect and cherish the life which he has given to us in the world. And, as we need many supports, that he would supply us with everything that he knows to be needful. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, among the ways that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is by asking the Father to provide what you need and trust that he will supply what you need. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore do not be anxious 
brother, sister, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. In the context of talking about material things, Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Father will meet your every need. And get this, in Christ, he has already met, believer, the need you most need him to meet. That is your need for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God and eternal life. If he never supplied you with another physical thing, he has already done everything to ensure that you will live with him eternally. But like the old beggar woman who prays a prayer of blessing over bread and water, all this in Christ too, he also meets our physical needs, Christian. Jesus says, ask him and trust your father as his loving and beloved child. Third, Jesus teaches his followers to pray for forgiveness. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, please be careful to listen to me here, because there are some really unhelpful ways to misinterpret what Jesus is saying. First, you could misinterpret him to mean that unless you ask for forgiveness of your sins in some ongoing way, your sins are not forgiven. No, no, no. Your sins are not forgiven on account of your asking, Christian, but on account of Christ's dying. The eternal, all-encompassing forgiveness of all your sins, known and unknown, sins of commission and sins of omission, sins past and present and future. The eternal, all-encompassing forgiveness of all your sins was accomplished fully in Christ's death and resurrection. You need not fear, believer, that if you're angry with your spouse or your children or you have some greedy or judgmental or lustful thought and then drop dead, that your salvation is on some kind of shaky ground. No! Your forgiveness is as certain as the preciousness of Christ's blood and the power and glory of his resurrection. Folks misinterpret what Jesus is saying here, and for them, 1 John 1, 9 becomes like the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My goodness, that's marvelously true. But don't think that you're only forgiven and cleansed from the sins you've confessed. No. Again, you must hang on to this. 
Your sins are irrevocably, Christian, paid for and forgiven and atoned for and removed from you, child of God, because they were placed on the crucified Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if Jesus is not saying here in this model prayer that we need to try and ask forgiveness for every sin of which we're guilty, what is he saying? I understand Jesus to be teaching that when we pray and when we're asking God to forgive us of our sins, we're mindful of the fact that we have remaining sin. We're mindful when we come to the Father that we come as those who only have access to him because his son has forgiven our sins. And I understand Jesus to be teaching here that we need to keep short accounts with God. That is, we ask forgiveness for sins, not because we don't have forgiveness already in Christ, but because harboring sin unrepentantly in our heart impedes our communion with God and, left unchecked, might reveal that we haven't actually ever been forgiven in the first place. Let me illustrate what I think I'm trying to say in what Jesus means here in Luke 11. Imagine I got sinfully angry with my children before I came to church this morning. By God's grace, I didn't, but I'm sure I'm guilty of some other sin. But imagine I got sinfully angry with my children or with my spouse or with some circumstance before I came to church this morning. Now, if I'm in Christ, that sin is forgiven. If I had a fatal car accident on my way to church, I would have gone to heaven because of Christ's death in my place and being placed in him. But if I'm mindful of that sin, I'm going to want to confess it to God as sin and to ask him for forgiveness, not for the sake of my salvation, salvation, but for the sake of not being impeded in my communion with the Father. You know by experience, don't you, believer, how unrepented of sin keeps you from prayer. It keeps you from reading the word. It even keeps you from wanting to be in fellowship with other believers. There are some of you who haven't gone to community group one night because you're so burdened by your sin, you don't even want to be around other Christians. It's not a case of being lost or being unclean. Christ took care of all that. But there's nevertheless some static in the line that gets either vertically or horizontally with other Christians that gets cleared up by acknowledging that sin and asking the Lord's forgiveness. I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. And notice that Jesus is assuming a forgiveness from his followers as they pray, asking God to forgive their sins. Forgive us our sins, verse 4 says here of chapter 11. For, or because, is the idea. Forgive us of our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Jesus is teaching that those who've been forgiven all their sins by the Lord, those people as a pattern of living, not perfectly, but as a pattern or characteristic, don't withhold forgiveness from others. The Christian The disciple, the follower, the genuine follower of Christ recognizes the incalculable debt that the Lord has forgiven us toward him. And so in response, we forgive others the relatively 
relatively paltry debt that they owe us. No matter what their sin toward us is, it will never even begin to approximate our sin against the God of all heaven. And so, since we've been forgiven, we forgive those who sinned against us, or as Jesus put it, everyone who's indebted to us. And linked to this idea of sin is the last of the petitions Jesus teaches. And lead us not into temptation. Now be clear, God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. James chapter 1 makes that crystal clear. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, James says. Satan tempts us, but God doesn't. Nevertheless... The Lord is entirely sovereign, even over all of Satan's doings. Therefore, he's sovereign over our temptation. It makes sense then to ask the Lord to keep us from temptation. A couple of commentators that I read in preparation for this message made a compelling argument that what Jesus is ultimately teaching us to pray for here at the end of verse 4 is that the Lord would keep his children from falling away or as a We heard a lot in our sermon series on Hebrews that the Lord would keep his children from apostatizing. Therefore, another way to pray and lead us not into temptation is, Lord, keep us from stumbling so as to fall. Keep us in faith in you. Cause us to believe on Christ all the way to the end. Now, don't get so rigid about God's sovereignty and the Bible's promises that one of his children will never fall away, which is unequivocally true, that you feel no need to pray this prayer. Praying this prayer is among the means by which his children don't fall away. In the same way that there's no doubt that his son is going to return, but notice... He tells us to pray for his son's return. Among the means by which he's going to send back his son is an answer to his children's prayers in the first two petitions above. Father, hallowed be your name. Father, let your kingdom come. And before we leave verses 1 to 4, you might be wondering why this prayer is so similar to and yet not exactly like the model prayer that we see from Lord Jesus in Matthew 6 that we pray the King James version of in our worship services. So let me just bring to bear all my theological training and pastoral ministry experience by saying, I have no idea. (laughs) But the prayers are roughly the same and the requests are roughly the same and they certainly don't contradict each other in any way. Now, in verses 5 through 13... Again, we're talking about what it looks like to be a follower, what it looks like to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see that genuine disciples love God by asking him for good things. Jesus teaches us how to ask in verses 1 to 4, and then in verses 5 to 10, Jesus reveals God's character as a motivation to ask. What motivates one of God's children to pray in the way Jesus has just taught? It's the Father's character. Unless you're just absolutely at the point of last resort, you're not going to ask for anything from someone whom you think is inclined to be withholding and uncaring or uninterested. 
And the question on the table is, is God the Father like that? And the answer is, he absolutely is not like that, as Jesus' two illustrations teach us. First, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells a story about a man who has house guests show up at midnight. That's a party foul. He has no food to give them, therefore no way to show them hospitality, and so his reputation is on the line. So the guy who has this unexpected company is faced with a dilemma. It's midnight, price choppers closed, I have no food for my guests, do I go and wake up my friend and everyone in his house to get bread for my guests and risk annoying my friend, or do I prove to be a bad host for these house guests? Well, you know how the man decides. He decides to go searching for food, and he knocks on the door of a friend's house and asks for three loaves for his guests. And the man who is asked for bread says, Do not bother me. The door is already shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. But, Jesus says, because of the impudence, that's verse 8 in the English Standard Version. You may have a different translation, but the idea is, of a rather inappropriate, audacious kind of boldness because of the impudence of the one with the surprised visitors manifested by a willingness to awaken a whole family after midnight. Because of the impudence of the man, the man's friend is going to rise and give him whatever he needs. Now what lesson are we to take about praying to the Father from this story? I think we see the meaning of the parable in Jesus' instruction immediately following in verses 9 through 10. Like the bold man, the impudent man, who went to his friend even after midnight, Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus is saying, take it to the Lord in prayer. Ask boldly, seek boldly, knock boldly. Again, with Hebrews in mind, we're beckoned to come to the throne of grace with confidence, knowing that we'll find the grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Why are we confident? Why can we come boldly? Because we're in Christ. And therefore, we'll be received. And it's never midnight in heaven. The one who watches over you neither slumbers nor sleeps. And if the man would be bold enough to ask after midnight and to awaken a whole family to ask, then you, believer, ask and seek and knock boldly to your father for his son's return and for what you need for your life and for the grace to stay in Christ all the way to the end. And then there's another related motivation to pray found in verses 11 to 13, with an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, no father, not even an evil one, will give his son a snake if he asks for a fish, or a scorpion if he asks for an egg. I know some fathers who might do that as a prank around here. But if even evil fathers then know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will the heavenly perfect, all-loving, all-wise, all-powerful Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. 
Now, maybe, again, you've got Matthew's parallel passage in mind where Jesus says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him? So how do you merge those two together? Good gifts, or as Luke puts it, the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit is the essence of the Father's good gifts to his children. Those to whom God has given his Spirit are those who are the recipients of God's promise to Abraham. Luke's going to have a great deal more to say in volume 2, the book of Acts, about the Holy Spirit. If you know Acts, you know that when the gospel moves forward in that book, it's accompanied by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, when the gospel begins to reach the Gentiles, what does Peter say has happened? The Holy Spirit has been given even to the Gentiles. And so the good things that we're absolutely sure to receive from the Lord are the good things that we need most, even more than physical provision, even more than physical provision. Things pertaining to eternity, forgiveness of sins, rescue from death and hell, eternal life in the new heaven and new earth, being found among Christ's beloved bride, Dwelling in person with Christ forever, free from sin and every curse. And the seal, the seal that we have the Father's promise of receiving those good gifts is the best good gift, the Holy Spirit himself. Paul says to the Ephesians, in him, that is Christ, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The essence of all God's good gifts, the seal that we've received all of God's good gifts, is the goodest gift, God the Holy Spirit. Now let's spend a few minutes thinking about how to make use of our text. First, let's think about how you go about sitting at Jesus' feet. To sit at Jesus' feet is to love and adore him and to want to learn from him and to want to listen to his word. That's what we see from Mary. So let me ask you, You who profess faith in Christ, do you see in yourself a desire to sit at Jesus' feet? Do you love him? Do you adore him? That is, in part, are your affections stirred when you contemplate Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures? Do you contemplate Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures? Do you long for him? Do you long for his appearing, as Paul wrote to Timothy? Do you, professing Christian, regard as your life's top priority being found listening to his teaching? I mean, do you regard that as your life's one thing? That's what Jesus says. Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. One thing is necessary. And so I ask you, professing believer, 
is being found sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him and adoring him and listening to his teaching, is that your life's one thing? Or is it one of your life's things? Is listening to Jesus' teaching among your top priorities? Yeah, it's a high priority. But so is family and your kids' sports or your kids' fine arts or climbing the ladder at work and your hobbies and your leisure time and a work schedule that you prefer and doing what you'd prefer with your money and taking vacations when you want and all of the rest. You know I'm not saying that those things are sinful in and of themselves. But this is to be your life's one thing that everything else, and I mean everything else, revolves around. And if that sounds unreasonable to you, I invite you to take it up with the one who said that he is the one thing who is necessary. So, how do you go about sitting at Jesus' feet? Well, you give yourself to listening to his teaching which is found in this book and in this book alone. So be where this is taught. Be at church. Be at community group when we're gathering around this word to talk about it. Until the day when we see him face to face and like Mary, hear his teaching with our own ears, his sheep hear his voice from his word. And that's this book. And by God's grace... We teach it here week after week after week. So come, come with the heart posture of sitting at the feet of Jesus when this word is taught. That is, submit to it, put yourself under it, purpose to hear it and heed it and obey it. Now I hope you receive this, brothers and sisters, as the good news that it is. Do you receive me calling you to sit at Jesus' feet as a happy command? Why wouldn't you want to have as your life's one thing sitting at the feet of Jesus? Peter said to Jesus in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I'm beckoning you with with a happy command. This is good news. To have a preacher call you to sit at Jesus' feet. I'm beckoning you to sit at the feet and to adore and to obey the one who died for his people. I'm, I'm calling on you to sit at the feet of the one who's readying his people to be presented to himself at the last day as his spotless and radiant bride. It's good news for me to say, come and sit at the feet of the one who's preparing a place for his people even now and who promises to come back for us and to raise us from the dead with immortal, incorruptible bodies free from sin and sickness and sorrow. An old hymn says, sitting at the feet of Jesus, where can mortal be more blessed There I lay my sins and sorrows, and when weary, find sweet rest. 
sitting at the feet of Jesus. There I love to weep and pray while I from his fullness gather grace and comfort every day. Now listen, friend. Sitting at Jesus' feet as Mary did is not something good Christians do while not so good Christians don't. Jesus is teaching us in this section of Luke's gospel, again, what it looks like to be his follower, what it looks like to be saved. And his followers adore him and learn from his word. And those who don't adore him and don't listen to his word have reason to question their profession of faith. Now, of course, his followers grow in loving him and grow in listening to his teaching from the word. But it's not the case that this is just icing on the cake for the believer. No, Jesus says this is your top priority. This is your one thing that is necessary. And so, brother and sister, repent this morning where you need to repent in this area and ask God to help you to grow in your sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his teaching from the word where it's preached. Second, I want to ask you, Christian, what do you think your father is like? What you think your father is like is going to have a lot to do with whether or how much you're found boldly asking him in prayer for things like Jesus taught us to ask for in the prayer in chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. Satan would have you believe that the father is by nature withholding. It's been his trick ever since Eden. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You see what happened? Satan persuaded Adam and Eve that God was holding out on them that God didn't want them to eat of the forbidden tree because there was something good waiting for them if they ate what God didn't want them to have. But what was actually the case? Genesis chapter 2, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. What God actually said was incredibly generous. Of every tree of the garden, you may surely eat. How many trees were in the Garden of Eden? How choice were their fruits unstained by the curse of sin? And God commanded them to eat of every tree except for one. That's not withholding. That's abundant generosity. But Satan lied about God's character, and he's been lying the same lie about God's character ever since. And I want to say a word to you who are outside of Christ this morning. You unbelievers, 
believe that lie even as we speak. You believe that to forsake your sin to follow Christ is to live a joyless life. You believe that to give your whole self to the Lord in repentance and faith is to sign on to a life of drudgery and despair. And Satan has convinced you that if you're going to have it all, you have to call the shots. Because to submit to God is to lose out because God is fundamentally withholding and not generous. And I want to say to you, it's a lie. And you who are outside of Christ, listen to me, please. I'm calling on you to hear it for the lie that it is and to believe God instead who's holding out to you from the voice of this preacher eternal life and forgiveness of sins. And I'm calling on you not to believe Satan who's going to be cast into the lake of fire and who would be pleased to have you cast into hell with him. I don't have the language to describe God's generosity. He gave you breath this morning. Your heart keeps pumping and your brain keeps working. Those are gracious and generous gifts. Is he obliged to do any of that in response to your sinful rebellion? For many of you unbelievers, God has given a spouse and children and a job. And even if he hasn't, I suppose that to all of you, he's given friends, a way to get around, a place to live. And if he had done none of that, And he's done all of that and immeasurably more. But if he had done none of that, how do you begin to quantify his generosity in giving his son? Jesus' death didn't make God the Father love sinners. God the Father loved sinners and so he sent his son to die. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His beloved son with whom he was well pleased. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah says, to put him to grief. It was the Father's will to curse his perfect, beloved Son to redeem his people so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. It was the Father's will to take the sins of his people and to take his wrath patiently stored up for sin and to place it on his Son and then to take his son's perfect, spotless righteousness and place it on sinners, people who were his enemies and who had done nothing except what was sinful and displeasing to him. And then, after having pierced his son, Isaiah says, for our transgressions and crushed him for our iniquities and having laid on his son the iniquity of us all, after having done all that, He then gave his Holy Spirit to dwell in his people and to teach and comfort and encourage and guide and convict and seal for the day of salvation. Paul says to the Romans, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm saying to you, the Father is not withholding. He's generous. So unbeliever, forsake your sin. Die to yourself and come to Christ. Repent and believe the gospel today. And my brothers and sisters, 
be reminded of God's character as revealed by the Son here in Luke 11. Be reminded of God's character as you pray and as a motivation to pray. He gives good gifts. He gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask. He will therefore certainly give us every lesser thing we need. And so be found regularly in prayer. Maybe in the morning with your book of prayer requests here at church in your hand. Maybe in the evening. The time isn't important. Maybe you want to set an alarm or a reminder on your phone if you've gotten out of the habit of being regularly in prayer. Motivated by God's character. Christ's followers, disciples, Christians, love God. They love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that love is demonstrated by listening to the Son and by asking of the generous Heavenly Father like a loving and trusting child. Let's pray together. Father, what a gracious thing you've done for us by permitting us to sit at your son's feet, to learn from him, and by giving us access to you through your son and for being our loving and generous heavenly father. So generous you poured out the treasury of heaven by giving us your beloved Son, in whom you're well pleased as our sin sacrifice. So, Father, help us to be found at Jesus' feet in submission to his teaching, in love and adoration for him, as you define those things. And help us to be found often coming to you through your Son, by your Spirit, our loving Heavenly Father. We come even now in Jesus' name. Amen.